If you aren't familiar with Andrew Lipstein, he's the writer of Last Resort, which is out now available at your local bookseller. We chatted about literary contrivances, power bars, and we even did some math riddles. Last Resort has been getting a lot of love. It's very heady and fun. You'll also get to hear Andrew read from his book in just a bit. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound. Cool. All right. Andrew, first question. Hot topic. These protein bars. Mm -hmm. You have 13 of them right now in your backpack. 30. Yeah. You have 30? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said 13. No, but I I literally came to Denmark with, I think, 75 of them. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That's okay. So actually, this this goes right into an important question here. So Last Resort describes a hot debut writer with prestige. Mm -hmm. How does that differ from being one in real life, aside from the protein bars? You know, my experience of the publishing process is, you know, it's all about expectations. And I think there is a high expectation of like, it's a very public moment. You there, you want prestige, you want to feel special and for there to be sort of momentous occasions. But those ex- expectations just sort of leave you to be disappointed a lot of the time. I mean, especially in COVID times, you know, I had in-person events, but they were everyone had masks on. And in the other event, it was just me and the interviewer. And most of my experience of the book is just being online and, and on my computer, which sort of numbs or filters the whole publishing experience. It just makes it feel sort of every day in a certain way or like a little unreal and in a muted way that hasn't really matched my expectations. Did you have any reservations in writing about a writer? Not as much as I had sort of a reservation about writing more about myself and my own desires and vulnerabilities, which I think is what differentiated this book from my previous attempts, of which there are quite a few in which I couldn't sell. I think in this book, I was much more personal and much more vulnerable about being a writer and all the the naked ambition that writers have to have to even finish a project, let alone make it good enough to sell. But I think that sort of fear or that feeling of higher stakes is also what contributed to me being able to get more excited about the project. Higher stakes meaning because it is so close to you, you feeling so vulnerable and that you are writing about a writer? Yeah, that I'm putting putting my own vulnerabilities into the character and into the book. To me, that feels higher stakes and the sort of normal world building that goes along with, you know, writing a work of, of literary fiction. I mean, this book isn't autofiction, but it is, it does align with my life in a lot of ways. When you weren't writing from your own self, who were you writing from? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, I think the answer is, is no, nowhere, no one. I was just wanting to write a book and craft beautiful sentences. And I don't think I cared nearly as much of where the material was coming from or why I was writing what, what I was. Well, your Flash manuscript inspired someone on our team, Matt Keeley, to go by Last Resort the day it was published. So you have some real lovers here. And I'm curious about your next novel, Flash and Yearn, which is about the tech finance scene. And while your book, Last Resort, is about the literary scene, being that you work in literature and tech, how do the two novels reflect different sides of you? I mean, obviously, we just got into Last Resort a little bit, but maybe we'll get into Flesh and Yearn. Yeah, so, well, the second book title will be changed, TBD to what, 
Yeah, they, they each reflect a different side of me. I think what's so what's so interesting about the finance world versus the literary world, and my wife actually works for a finance magazine, and she's not a finance person, and and I probably wouldn't define myself as one either. But we both of us talk about how much we love the world of finance as opposed to the world of culture. I mean, she comes from a journalistic background. All of her friends are sort of culture reporters. Is that in finance, there's a, everyone knows the the score is real. You know, in culture, there's a score that everyone knows, but how people sort of get acclaim and fame is so much more subjective and up to, you know, the whims of networking and who they know and press pieces and things like that. But when I, whenever I spend too much time in like thinking about culture or stuff, like thinking about finance and just like reading business books or business articles is so comes to such a relief because I'm like, this is so much, this is so real, you know, when money's on the line, when you're talking about the public valuation of a company, I mean, there, of course, there's tons of faking in that, but it just puts in relief, like all of the contrivance of, of the literary world in general, which is, of course, what a lot of Last Resort is about. So this is the starting at the top of my novel, Last Resort. Caleb, it's brilliant, he said, not listening. Brilliant. He was looking past my ear to the bar, where I assumed our server must be, or some other woman. That our waitress wasn't conventionally attractive didn't stop him from making a face at me after she'd introduced herself and walked away. I had mirrored it, raising my eyebrows and sucking in my lips before taking a sip of water to break the moment. His eyes came back to me. He clasped his hands, placed them on the table, and began talking. I could hardly listen. I couldn't stop thinking of the affectations infecting his words. Do get in touch. Have a go. If I could be so daring. Unearned pauses, overemphasized mm-hmms, and how rampant it is in the book world, and elsewhere, like the cafe by my apartment stocked with people who dress like artists on weekends but spend their weekdays on Slack. He ended his brief soliloquy with something about Mavis Gallant, whom I never read and whose name I thought was pronounced differently. I looked it up when I got home. He was right. This was all in response to a new story idea, which was a response to him asking me if I had my next book in mind. Next book, as if the one we were meeting to discuss were already in the past, which was supposed to be a seg from our aimless banter to real business talk. When I told him the new story idea, a party of 30-somethings where everyone slowly realizes death is present, literally in the room, in disguise, and by the end of the night it will take one of them, so that the entire time they all have to prove how full of life they are, he said, a word or two before I finished, love it, which made me hate it and regret ever having dreamt it up. Ah, gallant, I said. He looked at his hand, rubbed his pointer and middle fingers together, then scanned the room. He said he wished we could smoke in restaurants, and then, thanks Giuliani, which I thought was an ironic riff on, thanks Obama, which is already ironic. Also, the smoking ban was Bloomberg, not Giuliani, but he was apparently sincere. This tarnished some of my assumptions about him, mainly that he should be unflaggingly smooth. Ellis Buford was a quote-unquote big-shot agent, 
a phrase I'd heard from too many people with too little irony. He was taller than I'd expected, but less handsome in some inscrutable way. I disliked him the second we shook hands, when he apologized for being late. Please forgive my truancy, he'd said. But all of that didn't matter. Nothing mattered in the face of the fact that he was a big-shot agent who was going to change my life. Yes, the phrase is ridiculous, but the concept transcends ridiculousness. The concept being power. Big shot. Those two words were the first my lips formed the second we hung up after he called me out of the blue on the Saturday morning four days before our lunch. I was lying on my couch, drinking coffee, listening to John Wizards at full blast. My roommate was out of town and playing chess online with my computer on my stomach, a ritual I don't normally interrupt before it fulfills its purpose, a bowel movement. When my eyes wandered to the window, catching sight of a building in the distance, I recognized it and was taken aback. The building was in Brooklyn Heights, meaning that my window didn't look south but west. That I'd been mistaken about the cardinal orientation of my apartment for the year I'd lived there was unbelievable. I was someone who could point north any time of day. I considered finishing the game, but I was going to lose anyway. So I put on my slippers and walked downstairs and around the apartment until I found my fire escape. I turned around and found the building again. I was right, I realized. I'd been wrong that whole time. And that's when my phone rang. Caleb, he said. Yes, I said. This is Alice Buford. I've just finished your novel. Do you have time? The waitress had seen him look around the room and, misinterpreting, came over with a pen and pad in hand. Nothing more than accessories, surely, an ironic, kitsch addition to an atmosphere that seemed designed for readers of Maxim. Reclaimed wood clashed with metallic chandeliers, clashed with the mid-century modern furniture and attire. It didn't make any sense, but nothing made sense anymore. And also, sometimes a nice Soho address is all you need to charge $36 for a lunch lamb shank, which was what he ordered us both, along with a Heineken for him. When the waitress looked at me, I forgot I could speak. To save me from embarrassment, Ellis said the place had great Manhattans, and I said, that's great, I'll have that. As soon as she walked away, he jumped right in, as if we'd been discussing the book the whole time. He told me how he'd position it, and me, the story behind the story, which as far as I could tell, mostly meant my age, 27, which I didn't think was that young, but he seemed to think it was. And didn't you finish it when you were 24? I hadn't, and demurred. That's prodigy eligible, he said. Then he spouted a laundry list of words and phrases describing the book and my style. My aesthetic, he said, that he would try out with editors, some of which would end up on the back of the book and eventually in the mouths of critics and booksellers and, if all went well, Terry Gross. And who knows, he said. Seth Myers. During all this, he elegantly wove in his own past successes and what they did or did not have in common with how my manuscript might be sold. Something in me disliked this kind of talk. It made me feel I should cling to the purity of art 
when confronted with the vulgarities of commerce. But another instinct, a better instinct, made me exhale, sit forward in my chair, put my elbows on the table, and listen intently as this man considered my book in much the same way he considered our waitress as she laid down our drinks. This is all assuming we can work together, he said. And for a brief moment, I revisited a thought I'd spent the past three days convincing myself was irrational. That he'd asked me to lunch only to say the manuscript wasn't for him, or that it would need considerable work. But he was staring at me. Jesus Christ, I thought. He thinks I have other offers. The excitement passing through me felt like a vulnerability I should hide. I looked at him and smiled bashfully, and then I took a sip from my drink. How is it, he asked. Good, I said, as if I could tell, as if I cared. It had alcohol in it. The worry in his face was intensifying. I hadn't answered his tacit question. I asked myself what exactly I was playing at. I didn't know. Yes, I said, I I want to work with you. He smiled and drank his beer, and then launched back into it. So, there are five big publishing houses, umbrellas, if you will, but within them are... I didn't know if he was giving me the benefit of the doubt, or if he truly believed I didn't know all of this, given I'd already admitted to having a publisher's marketplace account, given I'd asked on our call if he thought he could sell the book in time for the Frankfurt Book Fair. He must have known how obsessively I'd researched the landscape, the editors I wanted to work with, the art that would be perfect for the cover, the typefaces. I thought again of Caslon and deckled edges and cloth-bound covers of the most subdued greens. And my mind steadied again only when he said, Ed Pollock might like this. It would be a dream to work with Ed Pollock, I said. And he nodded, thinking of other names that might impress. Rebecca Wallace, he said. I don't know if it's for her, really, but she hasn't bought anything substantial in half a year. I thought I hid my reaction to this, but he picked up on it and passed a smile that was reassuring, or maybe playful, some mix of sentiments that combined for a flawless response. Perhaps I'd underestimated him. Perhaps his sort of grace was more practical. He switched from editors to imprints, naming all the ones I expected and needed to hear and the one that I didn't want to, PFK. Hmm, I grunted, my attempt at expressing vague doubt. No, he asked. I don't know, I said. They've never really struck me as all that serious. He looked perplexed and mildly amused. He started balancing his beer bottle in the crook of his arm, the first mannerism of his I liked. He was taking his time to respond. Are you sure, he finally asked, setting the bottle back on the table. I haven't liked some of their stuff, I said. Some of it's been a bit... Underedited, he finished. He gave an easy smile that said we didn't have to talk about anything I didn't want to, but I could tell he'd made a mental note of my exact words. I took another sip. I wished I hadn't said anything. The air had become thick, and now he wasn't going to continue naming imprints. Over his shoulder, I saw our waitress trailed by a waiter, each holding a dish. They were flat and small, the food on it much smaller. Why she couldn't carry both, I didn't know. As they laid down the dishes, I smoothed the napkin on my lap and wiped my forehead, 
The food had been painstakingly arranged. I imagined tweezers. The meat was pink, with a layer of oily juice on top, a trail of bright red berries falling off one side onto roasted chard, all of it catching the room's best light. I picked up my knife and fork. They felt like foreign objects. I almost couldn't admit to myself that I'd lost my appetite. Hey, there's still more conversation ahead between me and Andrew. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Andrew Lipstein. We're chatting about his book, Last Resort. As far as the tradition of the comic novel, do you have any feelings about that? Yeah, I think I think the comic. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who, if I see a book and it's labeled as like comedic or humorous, that immediately means I won't read it because I think usually the point of the novel is to be funny. But I think that's more a symptom of today's literary culture. I think if you go back 20, 30 years into literary books that had a comic side, the comic side was like a sweetener to what else there was. But I think when books come out today, like they have to be so one thing in order to be bought and marketed that if it's a comic novel, it's like first and foremost a comic novel. So I do have a lot of reservations about well, at least the books that are coming out today that are like billed or written to be funny, because I think that sort of takes over the rest of the book. I mean, obviously books are still taking risks. I mean, there's there's brilliant books written every year, but like you're saying that the, the industry that they exist within is almost resistant to taking bigger risks if a book is not more streamlined in, in how you're and how it's packaged. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, taking bigger risks in buying these books, in influencing writers through agents and editors to write books that are more marketable. I mean, not to project too much, but like the Netflix model of we're going to develop a TV show based on a title and like an image that we know our algorithms say people will watch. I mean, you do feel the more you pay attention to the books that are coming out, like they're just like matching a brief. And there are less and less complex mainstream books that you don't already have an opinion on before you pick it up because it's sort of just so cookie cutter. I mean, of course, tons of pub there, there are publishers that are putting out amazing books that are great to talk about because they're so hard to define. But those publishers are defined by that they do that, whereas that used to be sort of the mode. Maybe we should go back to just snail mail <laughs> instead of email, because I feel like that was when the big major changes started occurring. And then when you have something like the pandemic, anyone can send out their NaNoWriMo novel in a matter of just... <laughs> seconds to everyone. No, I mean, I, know, I, I get I get that I sort of sound like a Luddite, and I am in many ways a Luddite. I mean, I've never had a, had a smartphone. And, you know, I, I'm not a relativist. I know that when we say things used to be better, that's just because we, we didn't live in those times. Sure. I do think books don't have to be carried on the same waves that the rest of, you know, narrative art is in, in movies and TV. Right. And I think more and more books succeed in being a respite from the attention, you know, the, the attention demands that, that you know, I, I spend my whole, like, life and day on the computer now, and my attention has gone to shit. I can't even, like, read anymore. 
I have to like listen to audiobooks, and even when I've been editing my own work, I have to have it read back to me on the computer just because of how our lives are. Mm-hmm. And I think books are like our only salvation from that. Yeah, you you and me both. I feel I feel the exact same way on that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people. I, I don't. I haven't spoken to anyone who's disagreed on that. And in the past, even two years, our attention has gotten so bad that like. It's hard to even like watch a full movie at home without getting up to do something else. And that's like, it's such a shocking concept, but it's also so mundane because we're all going through it. It's one of those things that's so interesting, but not interesting at all because it's um, omnipresent. But I do think books can be like our salvation in that. And and they can, and we can be Luddites when we talk about books and what we expect them to be. And we can ask that they don't change as much as other narrative art forms have. I agree with you on books. And it reminds me of what I I, I would go on a rant periodically. This was maybe probably three years ago about theaters. Why I enjoyed a theater experience was because you couldn't press pause and you were forced to watch it. Completely. However, the last three theater experiences I've gone to, or no, maybe only two in, in, in this year, the first time since then, I actually could could barely get through it. Number one, because of anxiety and also because I really wanted to be able to pause it and chat with my partner and like discuss it and then get up and go get another meal. And I was actually getting used to these breaks in kind of the same way that you would with a TV show or with a book or with something long form. But it's funny how that's changed. No, I, I agree with you. I'm like, I'm like fidgeting. I'm like, I remember I saw a movie maybe one of Terrence Malick's most recent movies, it was like, took place in the, I think, mid 20th century. It was three hours long and I went to the theater and I found it so boring. But when I left, I was like, my mind feels different in a good way because it's like slightly reprogrammed to be a little more patient and have a little more concentration than I'm used to. Yeah, you actually got challenged because of the environment that the art is meant to be experienced within. Yeah, completely. I really appreciate the work that you've put into your books, and we're going to get into you reading from your reading your story here in a little bit. But because I know that you have uh, your bachelor in mathematics, I got two math problems for you. All right, let's do it. Okay, if there are four apples and you take away three, how many do you have? Do you take three from the other person? I'll repeat it. If there are four apples yeah. and you take away three, yeah. how many do you have? You have three. You're right. Correct. Okay, good. You passed that one. Can't fool me. Whew. All right. You get, to keep, you get to keep your degree. I didn't know my degree was on the line. I wouldn't have agreed to this interview if, I, if that was the case. <laughs> All right. So which weighs more? 16 ounces of soda yeah. or a pound of solid gold? They, they weigh the same. Ah, man, I can't get anything past you. No. You get to keep your degree, and we're gonna we're excited to hear you read the story, so I appreciate you taking this type of chat. Thanks, Jude. There's still more story ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Andrew Lipstein and he's reading from his novel, Last Resort. So in this section, Caleb has just driven across the country. He's recently had his heart broken, and he's also struggled to sell a novel he wrote, which he admits isn't very good. He stays one night with a college acquaintance, Avi, in Los Angeles. After both get drunk over dinner, Avi tells him a story about a recent scandalous trip he took to a Greek island. The next morning, Caleb finds, in his inbox, 
a story Avi wrote about the incident. I had hoped to parlay that first night into a longer stay. Surely Avi's benefactor's meditation room would remain unclaimed. But as my hangover dimmed, I came to accept that it wasn't in the cards. After all, his note had described how exactly to lock the door on my way out. I drank more water and ate some cold cuts and olives I found in the fridge, and then packed up and drove to the nearest Starbucks. For the next three days, I Airbnb'd a windowless room in Koreatown for $43 a night. It was my first time in LA, and I wanted to have fun, but I was hemorrhaging money. If I was going to extend my little sabbatical from real life, I needed to be someplace cheaper. So I spent much of those three cloudless days on my computer, back on the Craigslist aggregator, searching for sublets all along the West Coast that were under $400 a month. There was too much to sort through, so on the second day, I added the filters, expired start date, and repeat posting. By the third day, I was willing to look past serial killer grammar. Great spot, space space, exclamation point, space space. Must be clean, space space, comma, space space, and kind. And still couldn't land anything. I was just about to book my place in Koreatown for two more days when I got an email back from a girl named Bertie in Eugene, Oregon. She was a senior at the University of Oregon and lived with three roommates. From her Facebook, I gathered that her life revolved around Ultimate Frisbee. She was in Haiti doing humanitarian aid until the fall semester. She said as soon as I wired her two months' rent, the room was mine. I left at 6 the next morning because the drive was 14 hours nonstop, and I had texted Bertie's roommates that I'd be there, quote, before bedtime. When I reviewed the exchange in the morning, I regretted using such a creepy phrase, especially because no one responded. I thought to call but feared that would be even more unwelcome, so I just started driving. At that point, I saw Los Angeles as a black hole for my checking account, and all I wanted to do was get away from it. I had heard Route 1 was beautiful, but that would have added hours to my trip, so I took Interstate 5 instead. New Jersey turnpikes get a bad rap, but I would have taken an endless string of Best Buys over that abyss of visual information. By hour three, I was seriously struggling. It was as if all of the trip's podcasting caught up with me at once. All of the cute phrasing and mouth clicks and contrived affectation coalescing into one amorphous host who seemed to always be so surprised by what his guest had to say, who played dumb too often, who laughed too hard, too close to my ear. I didn't have much else downloaded to my laptop, so I switched to top 40 for 15 minutes before deciding silence was best, was needed, was natural. For millennia, man had subsisted on nothing more. This paved the way for a nice meditational period, which quickly turned into an audit of all my past failures, which narrowed to my manuscript, which by then was a well-worn topic with predictable ruts. All the strokes of genius that turned out to be pretentiousness all the emotional depth that was actually sentimentality, all the wasted hours. It was a dimly lit cave I'd slept in for many nights, but all of a sudden there was a hidden passageway out, a failed manuscript I could dwell on that wasn't mine. Avi's. I gripped the steering wheel and gave a little jerk to either side. The thrill of circumnavigating emotional pain. His story was bad, yes, but why exactly? 
Tolstoy's epigram on families could just as well apply to fiction, but inverted. Each successful story succeeds in its own way, but all the bad ones fail for a short list of reasons. For starters, he tried to make objective something so obviously personal, starting with the point of view. A switch from third person to first would not only have opened up a lot of emotional doors, it would have let him tell the story truthfully, allowing the protagonist's flaws to show, if not unintentionally. But flaws need sympathy, and there was hardly anything to feel sympathetic about. Sophia is going to eventually reveal her plans for euthanasia. Avi's narrative, on the other hand, to recap, a complete postgrad feels compelled to take a vacation, would need to match the emotional depth of hers. He would need some sort of breakdown of his own. Not a postgrad breakdown, but something real. A divorce. Yeah, and more. A lost child. Some pathos to spend all that serious writing on. And God, the writing. So humorless. Down to his title, Jouissance. I looked it up. It's French for fucking. Or not really. Something from Lacan, save me. And speaking of fucking, but not really, where were his sex scenes? Two strangers fuck on a lawn at night, and all we get are their, quote, moans dissolving into that dark, that salty air. Knowing Avi, I'd bet my life that his foursome scene kept the men apart. Surely he'd fail to see the opportunity to make Joe, who is already way too passive, an active character. One impulsive man-on-man handjob, and Joe's regret could be the motor for most of the denouement. When the sun set, I was still moving pieces around, reimagining lines of his I was surprised I could even recall. I only stopped three times, for gas, a bathroom break, and a late lunch at Subway, beating Google Maps prediction by 45 minutes. The girl who opened the door was surprised to see me, and a bit put off. I got the impression she didn't love the idea of Bertie subletting her room to a man. When she let me in, I stopped myself from making a joke about bedtime and generally managed to transmit my harmlessness. She gave me a perfunctory tour of the house and showed me my room, which was bigger than I imagined, with wide windows on two walls, wildflowers and ferns shooting into view. I took off my socks, brushed my teeth, and plugged in my laptop. I cracked my knuckles, exhaled, and opened a new Word doc. I wrote, As I walked down the dock, my eyes still needed to adjust. I'd spent the ferry ride hunched over a newspaper, and I couldn't understand the source of an unusual sound, a sort of sticky thwack. A few moments passed, and the world resaturated with color, and I found it. Men hoisting dead octopuses over their shoulders and slapping them against wooden boards, over and over, each tenderizing swing, giving the meat a second's grip on the lumber. I stood there for a minute and watched, and they didn't notice me. Or maybe they were just used to tourists gawking. I read this three times. I changed a word and then changed it back. So much is decided in the first paragraph, the first sentence, really. Point of view, tone, texture, velocity. And now that all that had been decided, I didn't really have to think. I could just imagine the story in my head and put it on the page. And for two months, I spent most of my waking hours doing exactly that, and all the better to evade the breakdown that still occasionally threatened to surface. I'd wake up and write in my room and then go to the Eugene Public Library, 
for a change of scenery, and at six I'd drive back, picking up dinner on the way. I'd eat in my room while I wrote, something I was never able to do, eat and write. But it didn't really feel like I was writing, it felt more like I was watching a TV show, one which I just had to occasionally pause and put down on paper. Last Resort is available now. You can get yourself a copy at your local bookseller. Thank you to Andrew Lipstein for reading. Thank you to Lauren Roberts at FSG Books. And thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryboundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Do not forget to take 30 seconds today and meditate. I guess there is mention of a public library after all. I mean, maybe, <laughs> so there you go. maybe we could use all this. Yeah. Do you think we're good? I think we're all good. Um, cool. Let's just get like 30 seconds of room tone in here um, for cool. Jake to work with. So that just means like just sitting here for 30 seconds in the quiet. Cool. Starting now. All right, all good. Here we got you some room tone. You'll be happy with us. I am so happy. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.